Matthew chapter 28 is where we're going to be. We're going to look at verses 1 through 9 primarily, and we'll probably grab a hold of verse 10 before it's all said and done too. Let me, I should have said this earlier. We've been looking at a mini-series, a gospel mini-series for the last four weeks, and we've been really, before that and now next week as well, we've been walking through the book of Hebrews, but we took a pause because this is a special time in, in our culture, Easter, uh, Resurrection Day, and so we wanted to take a pause and just simply have a, a real quick crash course in gospel. What is more important to the life of the church than the gospel good news of Jesus? That's why we've been here, and this is the fourth and final week of that mini-series, Hope and Hopelessness. We're looking at things exactly as Jesus Jesus said that they would occur, and that being the resurrection. Matthew 28, 1 through 10 says this. Now, after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, that's Sunday, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. And his appearance was like lightning, and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus, who was crucified. He's not here, for he is risen, as he said. Come see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy. And ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshiped him. The closer you look at the Bible, the more obvious it becomes that nothing about God's plan is accidental and nothing about God's plan is coincidental. We left off last week talking about Passover, and I realize that's a Jewish thing, but man, you just can't have the gospel without understanding something about the Passover, specifically that Jesus died as our substitute. And when the Jewish people took the Passover, they were looking back. The Jewish feast of remembrance of God's salvation from Egypt, when God's people were in slavery to an empire called Egypt, and God liberated them miraculously from that. And so they did this feast, Passover, to look back and look back and look back and remember and remember and remember our God saves. That's what they're remembering. And it was the Passover, the season where they remembered that our God is a God of salvation. What we looked at last week was that Jesus, when he was at the Last Supper, gathered around the table with his disciples, that was also at the Passover season. This weekend, Passion Weekend, it occurred at Passover weekend, which is not insignificant. It's extremely significant. We talked about the fact that that Last Supper was also the last Passover because there was no reason anymore to look back to Egypt, but instead to look back to Calvary. That's why Jesus said, and that's why it says on this table, a lot of the tables that are similar to it, do this in remembrance of me. The emphasis there is not in the word remembrance. The emphasis is of me. Because they would look back at Egypt, and now he's saying, no, 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 the game has changed. No longer do you look to the salvation of Egypt that could not deal with your sin problem. From now on, when you think about a God who saves, you look back to this weekend, he said. Remember it. Jesus, the final and the new Passover lamb, the substitute who bled and died for us that we may be saved. And we just sang so much about that. That occurred on Nissan 14. Not Nissan like the thing that I parked out in the parking lot or actually back in the cemetery. Thank you guys, by the way, for taking one for the team and doing that to make room for all of us here. Uh, Not that kind of Nissan. Nissan was a month in the Jewish calendar. And on the 14th day of Nissan, that was their Passover time for sacrifice. All those lambs that they would eat later on, they had to first be slaughtered at the temple. And so... 
On Nisan 14, they would slay the Passover lambs that afternoon. Do you know what time of day on Nisan 14 that Jesus was crucified? The time that the Passover lambs were being slain. There's no accident there. There's no coincidence there. The message is loud and clear. There was nothing accidental or coincidental about Jesus' crucifixion. And the same is true of his resurrection. Guys, it happened just as he said it did. It happened just like he said it would. God is in control and was then and is now. We're going to walk through the passage now, line by line, verse by verse, and then we'll backload some application with four responses to the resurrection. Let's start, though, in verse 1. It says, Now after the Sabbath, that would be their Saturday, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. I just think it's funny that Matthew didn't even think that he would say the name. He just said, yeah, the other Mary. She gets an honorable mention. The other one? Eh, it was some, some Mary. I just think that's kind of funny. But it says that this happened uh, the day after the Sabbath. The Sabbath would have been Saturday, and this happened on Sunday morning. You know, it's true that God's people worshiped on the Sabbath, and they, they kept the Sabbath, the Saturday. And you may wonder, why do we not worship on Saturday? The reason we worship on Sunday is because of this, because of this event. The early church, they said, why do we worship on Saturdays? That's, not the, that's the day of doom and gloom. That's the day that Jesus was at rest in a tomb. Why don't we change the day we worship and worship on the day that Jesus vacated the grave? And so now and forever, God's church celebrates the resurrection on Sunday morning because that's when Jesus said, I win. Just a little weekly party we got, right? The synoptic gospels, which are Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Uh, We're looking at Matthew, but Mark and Luke provide some other details here. We know that it's not just Mary and Mary that were at the tomb or going that way that morning. It was several women. Matthew is less concerned, though, with clear chronology and hitting all the details, but rather he's hitting on the high notes of what occurred. Look at verses 2 and 3. And behold, speaking of a high note, and behold, there was a great earthquake. For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing as white as snow. Likely this happened prior to the women's arrival. They don't have much of a reaction to that event. And so probably this earthquake happened before they arrived while the guards were there guarding the tomb. (coughs) It says that there was an earthquake. And the very next thing it says is, let's see, great earthquake for, meaning because an angel descended. This earthquake and the arrival of the angel are connected. God does an amazing thing and sends a messenger from heaven, and in so doing, things get out of control, literally. This word, the Greek word for earthquake, it's translated earthquake because to us that word kind of makes sense, but it's the Greek word for seismos. It's where we get the word seismic from. That's the Greek word here, Uh, but that word can be used to be a shaking of lots of things. It can be a shaking of land, sea, or even a shaking of the wind. In fact, other places it's translated a great rushing wind or a whirlwind in two places. It's also translated as a storm on the sea. And so it is usually translated the word earthquake, but what we have to know here is that the angel suddenly appears accompanied by some sort of violent shaking that moved the stone. And the angel looked like white lightning. White lightning sounds like a professional wrestler or like something, I don't know. I don't know why I said that. It's not in my notes and sometimes that stuff happens. The point is that God made a scene. He made a scene. When God intervenes, things happen. Things that are unexplainable happen. The world starts shaking. The winds perhaps start rocking. God causes an uproar, a tempest, and things start to quake. We start to get, I think, when we read a passage like this, some 
uh, unhelpful images, wrong images that come into our minds. Maybe it's because we picture angels as these guys in like long white gowns with halos on their heads and they got wings and they look cute and cuddly. And maybe even they're just naked babies. I don't know what comes to your mind when you think of an angel. That's not accurate. <laughs> I mean, we see these mighty, towering, amazing images of angels. And yes, they're given personified details like he, right? But they're amazing things that come with this appearance. It's powerful. It's a shocking scene. I think sometimes we think when it says the angel was sitting on the stone, we picture this little skinny white guy with a halo on his head and wings and a long gown, and he's kind of tongue-in-cheek going. No, it says it was terrifying. He wasn't just up there swinging his legs, being silly. This was God towering over his creation, invading the space of the normal and saying it's time for something abnormal to happen. Have you ever been outside when something in nature happens that reminds you that you're not invincible? Sounds of trees cracking. You ever seen a tree fall in person and the sound of that big, thick piece of wood snap and crack and then you hear it coming down, crack, 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 and then boom, and you're like, I'm small. If you're watching the Masters, the golf tournament, you saw a bunch of trees fell at one time on hole 17 and can you imagine being one of the onlookers underneath where that tree fell? Said no one was hurt, but my goodness, it's like, okay, I could die anytime. I could. That's what nature sometimes does. It reminds us that we are vulnerable. One time, um, I pastored a church before uh, fellowship in West Alabama, and we lived in a parsonage, which is just a, a house that's owned by the church that lives right next door to the church building. And so I had forgotten something one Sunday evening, right before church started, and so I had to go back to my house, which was the church's house, which is where I lived. I had to go back to the house to get something, and it was kind of windy, and it was like, you look up in the clouds, and you're like, it's not supposed to be that dark. You know what I'm saying? And so we were like, clearly there's a storm brewing, and I need to get inside quickly and get my errand quickly. And so I walk to the parsonage. I get about halfway, and I'm on the road, and the house is there. And right behind the house, there's a little metal roof shed. And you know where I'm going with this now, probably, is that wind starts to really kind of rock a little bit. And I'm just walking. <laughs> and then, boom, I see a bolt of lightning hit the top of that shed. It was so close that I smelled electrical fire like wires that are frayed and burned. You know what I'm talking about, that smell? I was so close to the lightning that I smelled electrical fire, and that was the moment that I was like, any time could be my time, right? I might have even said a bad word, and I'm confessing that to you. And it was, but, but the thunder was so loud. The thunder, why are you laughing? It's not funny, we're in church. The, the lightning was so, I'm trying to help you understand. The lightning was so loud. I felt like my eardrums bursted and my head popped open. It was so loud and I screamed something. I'm not gonna say what I, I screamed and I'm thinking, I'm actually within a shout's distance of the church and thankful that thunder was so loud they didn't hear me. But my point is, man, it really humbled me to my own vulnerability. Do you see what we are told happens to the only witnesses of this event, the soldiers, it's so sobering and awe-inspiring. This is not some cuddly God moment. This is a transcendent, shocking, stunning moment where God intervenes, and it can be very clear that only God could do such a thing. Look at these next details. Don't think of the cuddly. Think of the real here. Three and four says, his appearance, this angel, was like lightning. You ever seen lightning up close? I have. 
His clothing was white as snow, and for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. That means they passed out, they collapsed. Like dead men, they did not die, but like dead men, they fell over white. These were Roman guards. They were assigned to prevent a national insurrectionist's grave from causing any further insurrection. They were put there for a reason because they could handle the task. They could handle a mob that would come. They were afraid of burglary. burglary. They were equipped and ready for a fight. They would have been tough as nails, experienced, having seen some things. And these tough guys faint at the sight of God doing something small, rolling a stone away. And God could do so much more. But these hardened, tough guys simply collapse. But something else happens to the women. Verse 5, but the angel said to the women. So again, they probably some time has passed and the women arrive. But the angel said to the women, he's sitting on the stone, do not be afraid. It's just a pause there. Are you kidding me? I mean, the, the ground has shaken and amazing things have transpired. Do not be afraid, they said, or he said. For I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He's not here, for he has risen. Keep going. As he said, come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I've told you. Meaning, when it happens, you'll know that God did it. I love this. He's not here, for he has risen. Don't miss those three words. As he said. These women were there at Jesus' burial. If you look at the passage just before this one in Matthew 27, verse 61, it says Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were sitting there opposite the tomb. And it was a tomb because it held a bloodied, mangled body. Always so gut-wrenching to consider this because, I mean, have you guys ever been to a a funeral? I was at a funeral this week of a young man that was 35 leaving behind a seven-month-old daughter or son. The moment when the parents or the loved ones, when they close that casket, it is gut-wrenching because they identify, while, while the person is not in that body, they identify that body with that person and they know that's the last time they're going to see them, right? And it's always just devastating to see that scene. And this is what I think about when I think about this scene, is that the Marys see opposite of the tomb, they're, they're right there as the stone is rolled in front And they think, never again will we see Jesus. Consider the contrast of that moment suddenly is turned upside down as the angel says, come see the place where they laid him. Come see where he was. Guys, the angel did not roll the stone away so Jesus could get out. He did not need any help with that. He rolled the stone away so people could look in and see that it was empty as he said it would be. Those three words, as he said, shout the divine authority of God. Jesus had told them exactly how it would go down because what men meant for evil, God had long, long planned for good. Shortly after the transfiguration, which is when this amazing moment, I'm not going to get into this, amazing transcendent moment of God occurred. Shortly after such amazing things had happened, Jesus said to his disciples, Matthew 17, 22 and 23, as they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, the son of man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. Listen, and they will kill him and he will be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed 
Shortly after, or before rather, when Peter first confesses Jesus as the Christ, Jesus does it again, he says it again. Peter first confesses Jesus as the Christ in Matthew 16, 21 through 23. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside. And he began to rebuke him. No, you can't say that. That's not going to happen. Saying, far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. Why would he say that? He said, you are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. What does that mean? It means that Peter had his sights set on the wrong enemy. Jesus did not come to take over Rome. He didn't come to overthrow the scribes and the Pharisees. He came to defeat sin in the grave. And he had to die to do that. So I said to Peter, you're fighting the wrong guys, like what Brother Chris said just a moment ago. We don't wage war with swords. We wage war by shedding our own blood, Jesus says. Guys, Jesus did not leave the heavens to fight men. Jesus' descent from the heavens was an all-out invasion on the gates of hell, and they would not prevail against him. Another time he predicted, walking into Jerusalem, by the way, for the last time, walking literally to his death site, Matthew 20, 17 through 19. And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside, and on the way he said to them, See, we are going to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. Even the chief priests and the Pharisees, the ones that murdered Jesus, they knew that Jesus said this was going to happen. Matthew 27, 62 through 66. You look just back before this and you'll see it. It says, the next day, that is after the day of preparation, that'd be Friday. So on Saturday, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how this imposter, Jesus, said, while he was still alive, after three days, I will rise, they said. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people that he's risen from the dead. And the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, you have a guard of soldiers. Go make it secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. They went and made the tomb secure. If Matthew was writing this book with an iPhone, I think that he would have put a bunch of winking emojis at that verse right there. They could not make this tomb secure. The point is, it didn't matter the size of the rock, the extent of the execution. Pilate could have put the entire Roman army in front of that tomb, and it wouldn't have made a difference. Why? Because when God says something is going to happen, his words answer to no one. He is supreme. And today, God would have you do more than hunt eggs, eat chocolate, dress cute, Take a family photo, watch the masters, and eat some good food. You are here because he wants you to respond to the stunning event of 2,000 years ago that to this day still lives rent-free in the heads of those that oppose our God and his church, responding to the event and the name that is above every name, that there is salvation in no one else. He is the way, the truth, and the life. He is King Jesus. And today we respond to the fact that he is alive. I see four responses in our text. And I want to leave you with those same four responses if you're taking notes this morning. 
The first response is fearing, awe of God. Fearing, awe for God, being awestruck by Him, amazed by Him. There's a response that we see here that is fear. And I'm not talking about the soldiers, because as we keep reading, we see that it's not the soldiers are the only ones that are afraid, but the women are filled with a certain type of fear. Look at verse 8, the witnesses. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. Why are they doing it? Because the angel told them to do it. So they departed quickly, says they had fear and great joy. Fear intermingled with joy. Fear and trembling, you know, I think when we think about it, we think like snakes and heights and like public speaking and like ever going a day without your cell phone or something like that. That's what we think when we think of fear and trembling, but fear and trembling don't have to come from negative stimuli. It can come when you are so overwhelmed that you simply don't know what to do with the thing that is in front of you, even if it's a good thing. The first time I ever went hunting, uh, or hunting, sorry for using the G on the end there, I know you're offended by that. The first time I ever went hunting, I was 11 years old, and I went with my father, who is a big hunter, hunter. Anyway, first time I ever went, uh, I had a little 30-30 rifle, got in the deer stand. It was just a box stand that was pretty high up off the ground. Um, I'd never shot a rifle, never sat in a deer stand. It was a good-sized doe that walked out, and my dad's like, Caleb, that one's got your name written all over it. And I was like, bet it does. Not really. I was absolutely petrified. So he, he was like, stand up slowly and be very quiet. So I stood up. I felt like Elmer Fudd or something. I was like, I'm hunting deer. So I, I stood up and I grabbed the 30-30 rifle and I put it up on the side of the deer stand and I turned. I've told some of you guys this story, I think. And I turned and I put the, the rifle up on the thing. It was right over there. I can see it like it was yesterday, man. It's right out there. Do you guys see it over there? Uh, and I, I pointed the rifle at it and my dad was like, all right, you got to make sure you aim. He told me where to aim and he said, just breathe in and then take the shot. I was 11 years old and um, I dropped that mug. Okay. <laughs> but I remember I was, I had no clue what to do. And so I, I had, I was standing like this and, he, and he's like, okay, you need to, to get to where the, the rifle's level, make sure your aim is right. And so I was, if I was standing up, I was taller than the thing. So I had, it was going to be pointing down. So I had to get low so that it was aimed correctly. And so I just kind of leaned back like this, like this, not the best stance. And also I was 11 years old. Let me repeat that one more time. So before you guys start making fun of me, I didn't have it really secured into my shoulder. It was just kind of like there, you know what I mean? Like a, like a, like a fish handshake kind of thing. And so it was in my shoulder, but not really. And so when I pulled the trigger, uh, it, it didn't stay there and it fell into my elbow and then my elbow came up and the scope hit me right between the eyes. And then I was leaning back. So I just fell down and I right on my back, I started crying and screaming and my dad was like, you killed it. Like, you smoked that thing. You dropped it right there. And I'm like, you know I did. <laughs> um, these are tears of joy, man. I got up. I was happy. But look, that was a positive stimuli, but I was shaking. I was terrified. I was confused. That's fear, okay? It was a positive stimuli, but because I was faced with something I didn't know how to handle, I was shaking. And you're thinking, yeah, boy, that's buck fever right? That's what they call that. Well, my point is that emotions are, are complex, and they can mix. And it's not just true of that, but positive stimuli can do that in a lot of different ways. The first year that I was a pastor was 2016, seven years ago, I think, right? My math is right. For the first year that I was a pastor, every Sunday morning, I got up and I went and threw up. I vomited for the first year. I was so excited 
to preach the word, but I was petrified that I had to stand up and, and I was given the privilege, but such a weighty responsibility, a lofty calling, tremendous pressure of standing here and explaining the words of a holy God? Who can do that? Not me. You see what I'm saying? A positive stimuli brings trembling. I've been in my office talking to people about praying to receive Christ. And before and after, they'll be sitting there shaking, and they don't know why. It's a positive stimuli, but it's, so, it's a wave that you don't even understand. And while it's a positive stimuli, it is terrifying that you are about to cross over and understand that you're crossing over from condemned eternally to suddenly the greatest joy that you could ever have. That is terrifying. It should cause us to tremble and shake at the sheer wonder of that. It doesn't have to come from negative stimuli. It can come when you are so overwhelmed that you don't know what to do with the thing that's confronting you. And this is not just me making some human argument. This is the exact same thing that has happened here. It also happened several other times. Matthew 4, or Mark 14 is a good example. There's a great windstorm. They're on the Sea of Galilee. Waves are breaking into the boat. The boat was already filling. Jesus and his disciples. Jesus is asleep inexplicably. They're frustrated with him. And they say, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing and it says that he woke rebuked the wind meaning he told it where it should go stay there be quiet it says peace be still the wind ceased there was a great calm and then verse 41 says and they were filled with what great fear after the calm you hear that they were no longer afraid of dying they were filled with great fear because they said to one another who is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? That's a positive stimuli that they don't know what to do with. And it terrifies them. No doubt, thrilled to be alive, overjoyed. But Mark instead tells us about their fear. The women at the tomb, awestruck. Jesus may be alive. The last they saw his tomb, it was sealed. The corpse of their Lord and friend inside, bloodied and marred. They saw an angel then sitting on the stone as if to communicate that death is beneath God, not the other way around. They were confronted with the angel's statement that God had done what only God could do, and it made them tremble in fear. There's a reason why just about every time a heaven-sent messenger confronts a human, their first words are what? Fear not. Because when God does things, in some way it is terrifying. Can I just tell you something? Please listen. It is a soul-crippling reality in the very best of ways that the God who designed and placed every star and sun and planet in the solar system, who constructed the tiniest atoms that together constitute all matter, that he, that God, knows you through and through. He knows you at your very best, and far more stunningly, he knows you at your very worst, and yet he still loves you, desires to die for you, was resurrected for you, and desires an eternal relationship with you. That's stunning. There are times that we sing in here. Perhaps this morning was one of those times. And, and, I'm, and I, or maybe you get goosebumps. And it's not because of Chris's angelic voice. It's not because Clint's just biting his lips so hard on the bass guitar. 
I love you, dude. Why does that happen? It's because of what David said in the Psalms. What is man that you are mindful of him? The song, we are ransomed by our father. What is man that we can call God our father? That is a microscopic flicker of what eternity will be like. And that's trembling. I think fear, in a very odd way, is a healthy response to the splendor of the resurrection. Amen? The second thing is rejoicing. Rejoicing. Gratitude toward God. That's what it's fueled by, right? Gratitude toward God. Amazement that God has done what he's done for us. And it's rejoicing. I love the Christmas season. Not because we get to listen to Mariah Carey for like three months. <laughs> it's not... <laughs> It's because of the words of another terrifying angelic appearance. In Luke chapter 2, verses 10 and 11, he's, the angel appears to the shepherds and says, Fear not, for I bring you good news of great joy. It's his way of saying it's the verb form of the word gospel. I gospel you. You don't have to be afraid. I gospel you. I give you good news of great joy. that will be for all people. A Savior has been born. His name is Christ the Lord. You know why the women at the tomb were rejoicing? It wasn't just because their friend and teacher was alive. It's because his message was alive. It wasn't just because they were going to get to see him again. It's because his, what, he, what he preached, his message, his good news was not just alive and well. It was true. A Savior had been born, and he was and is Christ. Hope in a hopeless world. Despair and sin had reached their end in a Savior named Jesus. Guys, when Jesus defeated the grave, it was the first of many great triumphs over sin and death. The reason why? Every person in this room can say, I will be with God for eternal life is because Jesus himself ain't, ain't dead anymore. Only a God who has proven that he can defeat the grave, can make such a promise. That's our anthem. Why do we rejoice when we come to church? Why do we rejoice just in everyday life by the fact that we are Christians? It's not because we're part of the biggest whatever religion in every church, whatever. It doesn't matter about all that. The reason we rejoice is because we have been made alive and we were dead. That's the good news of the gospel. And that's worth rejoicing over. There is no people group or gathering on earth that should be bursting with more joy than the gathering of the local church. No football stadium, no concert venue, no book club. There is no gathering on this planet that should be filled with more joy than what we're doing right now. Because all those other things are vanities and they are perishing, but this is everlasting. We don't rejoice in this room because all of our lives are perfect. We're not singing a, a chorus of joy because we've just been good boys and girls this week. We're singing a chorus of joy because we haven't been, and we are still loved by a God who will never say, I no longer want you. Our joy is a choice. It's rooted in something the world cannot touch and cannot take away, and that's why it can be everlasting, but it is a choice James 1, 2 through 4 
says, count it all joy, meaning choose joy, my brothers. When you meet trials of various kinds, implying you will, life will be hard. Jesus said the same thing. For, why can you choose joy? For, you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. But don't miss this last part. And let steadfastness have its full effect. Here's the end game. That you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. It's Philippians 1, 1 verse 6. That he who began a good work and you one day will bring it to completion. How can we choose joy? Not because of what we've done, but by what Christ has done. No one knew sorrow like Jesus, and no one knew joy like Jesus. When it seems that the world is daily taking from you, consider what God has given and is giving you. How can we be in here and look so embittered and bored and careless and apathetic. It blows my mind that the church can be full of people that look angry and mad. It blows my mind that people can come in this room, hear those songs, hear this word, and just think, I guess that's fine. I'm not going to sing, though. What's for lunch? What a sham. How in the world can we claim this is true and be just careless and lazy and bored or just, just not even be here. This is the weekly celebration that you have hope beyond this life. And in a world that is constantly deteriorating, in a society that is just giving its middle finger to God every day, in a culture that is so backwards and wayward, do you not hope for glory? This is the weekly reminder that glory is just a step away. Joy is the response. And if joy is not in your heart, choose joy. Third is worship. That's the third response, is worship. Worshiping, it's admiration of God. That's what worship is, it's admiration of God. And we see this in verse nine. In verse nine it says, and behold, so this is, they're running away from the tomb, right? They're being, they're listening to what the angel said. They're running and they're going to go to Galilee and tell the disciples. But it says, verse 9, and behold, Jesus met them. So on their way, he met them and said, greetings. <laughs> greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshiped him. I want you to empathize with them for just a moment. Last time they saw Jesus, he was a lifeless corpse. He was so marred and bloodied, the garments that they wrapped his corpse in were surely stained red with his blood. They saw him roll that stone away and they say, or to, in front of the tomb, and they just said, we're never going to see that body again. He is gone. He is dead. He is decayed. And then suddenly, out of nowhere, the angel says this, and then suddenly, out of nowhere, Jesus appears and gives them a casual, hi. That's what this is. That greeting is very casual. It's, it's weird that Jesus would do that. He didn't say, Hello. I didn't intend to do that either. That's not what happened. Jesus very casually just appears and says, I'm here. Greetings. Hey. Almost disarming to the point where it's like, what did you expect? I told you. It's going to happen just like this. But their response is anything but casual. They fell before him. A big God deserving of big worship. Can I just tell you something this morning? You were not created by accident. You were not created by accident. You haven't gone through, thank you, you haven't gone through what you've gone through by accident. 
You weren't given your job with your coworkers by accident. You weren't entrusted with your children's souls by accident. You weren't, aren't, aren't married to your spouse, your spouse, by accident. You are not in this room by accident. Do you trust God with the circumstances of your life? He's a big God deserving of big worship in every facet of your life. God doesn't waste any of that. He doesn't waste any appointment. He certainly doesn't waste the fact that you're here right now. He doesn't waste any conversation before dinner. He doesn't waste any conversation before bed. He doesn't waste any conversation in the car, any teachable moment. Everything has a place. God doesn't waste his time, and I'm telling you, he's not wasting yours. And so when I see the word worship, I don't want you to think of singing. That's certainly part of worship, but they ain't singing. They're worshiping. They're falling at the feet of Jesus and simply admiring God. That's what worship is. In three words, worship is to see, savor, and celebrate God. To see, savor, and celebrate God. We can observe how wonderful God is and just simply see him and say, wow, what a God. You can savor then and say, man, God has done that amazing thing. He has provided this meal for us. We see this meal. God has put this meal here. Let us savor it and savor him that he is our provider. You don't just see it and let it just go out in one ear, out the other, or just gone right over your head. Take the moment that you see God's goodness, his glory, and savor it and take him in. You know why? Because the third step of worship is to celebrate him. And he doesn't waste any of that. To see, save, or celebrate God. In this worship service, this place was not rocking earlier because it's a holiday. It's rocking because we are blown away by our God. When you pray, see, savor, and celebrate God. When you study your Bible, examine it and say, wow, what a God. Let me take him in and celebrate his faithfulness, his goodness, his love, his mercy, his power, his authority, whatever it may be. In observing daily blessings, when the direct deposit hits, see, savor, and celebrate the God who is responsible. In the vehicle, you say, wow, God has provided this vehicle. I'm going to recognize that he is my provision, and I'm going to celebrate that I get to drive this car to work today. In your meals, in nature, with your friend group, in your church family, whatever it may be, look around at what God has done, and don't just see what God has done, savor what God has done, and the end game is to celebrate the God who did it. The same is true not just by looking at the good things God has done, but man, God has brought you through trials. God has brought you through hard things. And no one knows those hard things like you do, except for God. And when God brings you through hardship, see that he has brought you through it. Savor his provision through it and celebrate that you have survived to see the other side of it. You know what that's called? Worship. We can worship God through trials. We can worship God because if, even when we sin, he is steadfastly loving and forgiving and merciful. In Good Friday, you better believe we can see, savor, and celebrate God. In the Resurrection Sunday, you better believe we can see, savor, and celebrate God. It's not just supposed to be a rushing wind that blows past us. Take it in, grab it, and worship God. My grandmother's about to die. In fact, she may be dying right now for all I know. She's, her breaths are getting shorter and shorter and shorter. She's been on hospice for a while, and right now, she's, I mean, the her liver is no longer working, and so her brain is literally being poisoned by the medication she's taking. And so death is approaching, and 
for the last two months that she's been in hospice, you know what she's been doing? Worshiping. Worshiping. Because she's got perspective that even the hardships just press the foot to the gas, to the accelerator, that get her to her final and eternal destination. Don't you see that you can worship God in any and every circumstance? And I'll be honest, if there's a day to go and be with God in glory, it's Easter Sunday. What a day to remember that we're going home. This is not your home. There is not one thing in your life that is there by accident. How can you glorify God exactly where he's placed you? Heaven will not just be an eternal hallelujah chorus. It will be endless admiration of God, and you ain't got to wait to get there. The last thing that I want to look at that they, that they are told to do is to go. That's the fourth response to the resurrection is going. It's obedience unto God. Obedience unto God to go, be evangelistic. John Piper talked about worship and missions and evangelism, and he says this, I think this is a neat thing that John Piper has said, that missions exists because worship doesn't. You know what missions really is? It's going to make more worshipers. God is due glory. He's due praise. That's what worship is. Well, that's what missions is, rather. They're called to go, obedience to God. In fact, they're called in verse 7 by the angel. The angel tells them to go and tell. Then Jesus in verse 10, which I don't think we have on the screen, but it just says, then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. Go, be obedient. Go and tell people what you have just seen. Matthew 28, verse 18, just a little bit after this, 28, verse 18 says, Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore. You notice his grounds, the reason he says go is because he has every bit of authority. Every ounce of authority is tied up in the person of Jesus. And he says, all authority is mine. Now go and tell people about it. Go tell them that all authority belongs to me. You know what Jesus has authority over? He has authority, and he's already proven it in the, in the Gospels. He has authority over demons. He has authority over the body. He's cured the lame, the blind, the leper, the sick. He has authority over the seas. You hush seas. Waves, get out of here. He has authority over the winds. You stop blowing wind. Be calm. He's got authority over bread as it multiplies. He's got authority over sin as he says, your sins are forgiven. Who can say that? And finally, with Lazarus and himself now, he has authority over death, man. There's, amen. There is, there's nothing, nothing that comes out from under the umbrella of God's authority, Christ's authority. All authority is in heaven and earth been given to him. And he's called us to go and be evangelists to go be ambassadors, not the pastors only, not the missionaries only, disciples. Is that you? Does anybody else feel personally attacked by Facebook ads? I'm going to pause for a second. Just take that in. I feel personally attacked by Facebook ads. Um, back in 2020, um, everybody has a New Year resolution, right? Whether you take it seriously or not, it's up to you. But my New Year resolution in 2020 was to find the perfect pair of pants. And um, it's still my, it's every year now, it's my resolution. I just love pants. And now you're looking at my pants, and I don't appreciate that, all right? In fact, today I wore a pair of pants that don't qualify for the perfect pair of pants just so you wouldn't say anything about it. So I wouldn't have to explain it to you. But next time you see me, I'm going to have on the perfect pair of pants. 
It's actually still something I'm seeking, but I found some really good ones. And when I find a good one, I become an evangelist. And now Facebook knows that I'm on this journey, probably just because I've uttered it or even thought it. They pick up on your thoughts. Um, but I'm on this journey to find the perfect pair of pants. And then when I find a good one, I do become an evangelist for that pair of pants. And I'll say, hey, do you have these pants? You should get these pants because they feel phenomenal. They look dressy, but they feel like sweatpants. It's great. And they're also affordable. I mean, I'm not going to go there, but you know where I'm going. Thing is, I want to tell you about them, even though I know that you won't care about them as much as me. I still want to tell you about them. I want to spread the good news of the pants. That my life is better and yours could be too. I know that's silly, but listen, we are evangelists about what we care about. You are an evangelist. May or may not be about Jesus, but you are an evangelist about what you care about. It may be politics, and you see somebody on the other side of the fence, and you're like, you're wrong. You need to come over to this side. You may be a a warrior on Facebook for politics because you care about that. I'm not saying it's wrong to care about that. I'm just saying you're an evangelist for what you care about, and you want everybody to jump on the bandwagon with you. You may be an evangelist for your multi-level marketing business. You may be an evangelist for your gym or for your diet that you're doing. It's working for me. I want it to work for you. I'm enthusiastic. I care about this. Join me. You may be an evangelist about your team, your baseball team, your basketball team, your football team, your sports team, your kids' travel team, whatever it may be. No, you don't know. This is a great thing. Let me tell you about this thing. You may be just be an evangelist in general about your opinions. And I want you to see my side because this is the way. Many of your topics of evangelism are evident simply by looking at the content of your timelines. My point is this. Your lack of evangelistic effort is not a matter of gifting. It's not a matter of personality. It's a matter of affection. Do you care about this? Do you care about this? You are an evangelist for what you care about. Put two and two together. If you are not a bold ambassador and evangelist for Jesus... I'm not saying it, you are, but I will say it. You don't care about them. Or maybe better said, you don't care about your neighbor. You don't care about them. And you're hoarding the antidote to the venom that's coursing through the veins of the world called sin. You shouldn't be a louder evangelist for a sports team, a social media platform, or a political party than you are for the kingdom of God. And parents, can I just say something to you for a second? Don't train your kids to stand before a future boss or teacher or coach with more concern that you train them for when they stand before a holy God. One of those things is infinitely more important than the other. And one day, your kids will realize you didn't care about them. And whoever that person is that you need to go and tell. They may not care as much as you do, like you with my pants. You know, you're not going to care as much as me. And they may not care about this gospel that you cling to so tightly. But God did not call you to go and change people's hearts and minds. He called you to go. He called you to be obedient, not a world changer. You know who can change the world? Not Caleb Hughes. Jesus Christ can. No one in this room is a world changer, but Jesus is. He called us to be obedient not to be world changers. We need to go. But some of you guys are here today, not as those they need to go and tell, but as those who have been brought here because you need to hear. There are people in this room today that if I were to come up to you and ask you, do you know what would happen 
if you were to die in a car accident on your way home today. I did a funeral this week of a young man, I just mentioned him a minute ago, 35, that happened to him. Getting up, going to work one day, hit a tree, he's gone. If that was you today, and I'm not trying to throw a wet blanket on the day, but it's a sobering question. What is your hope built on? If it is anything less than Jesus' blood and righteousness, you don't have hope. But I'm here to tell you today that God, once again, does not waste appointments. He does not waste your time. You are here for a reason. And the reason is this. Perhaps you are lost. Perhaps you are searching. Perhaps you are doubting. You're confused. Perhaps you're angry at the world, angry at God, and you're wondering what gives, where's the hope, how could God fill in the blank? And you're here wondering, and you, maybe you're just here because it's Easter, and this is what you're supposed to do. It's, it's church day, and you're thinking, what is this guy talking about? But as things have gone on and on, you see, okay, he's not an idiot. Maybe he's placed this faith because he really believes it. Maybe there's something substantial about it that actually is reliable. Guys, 12 dudes believed Jesus to the extent that they would die for him. They knew what he looked like. They knew exactly what he looked like. They knew an imposture when they saw one. And yet they saw Jesus in the flesh and said, yep, I'm going to go die for him. Either they were absolute idiots and fools who had problems up here, or they genuinely believed what they saw and said, this is the way, this is the truth, and life is found in no one else. I'm going to give my entire life. Literally, most of them were martyred for their faith. Either they're idiots or there's really something to this. And perhaps you're here today because up until this point, you've thought these people are idiots. And now maybe you're thinking, perhaps, perhaps there's something to this. And I'm not asking you today. I'm not telling you today that you have to change your whole perspective. God can change your heart over a long period of time. But I'm here to tell you today, if you walk out those doors and you don't cling to Jesus for your only life beyond this life, you will die and go to hell one day. And that's not me being ugly. If there was a cement truck barreling down at you and you were standing in the middle of the road with your back turned, what is the most hateful thing that I could possibly do? Let it smoke you. And I'm sitting here trying to grab you and move you out of the way. Because sin is barreling down. But Jesus has said, come to me and you will have life. That's why we celebrate the resurrection. That's why this is a good day. And today, if that's you, and you have questions about that hope, if you have questions about what it means to give your life to Jesus, I'm going to ask the praise team to come. We call this a time of response. There's nothing magical that happens at this because this is the front of the room. There's nothing extra special about the oxygen up here that has some spiritual impact. But there is something powerful about the God that is moving in our midst right now.